You're listening to the Boots About Business podcast. We share stories from military veterans that have transitioned to the world of business. On the show, you'll hear conversations with business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs that all started their careers wearing boots in the service of the U.S. Armed Forces. This podcast is equal parts about sharing great stories, helping veterans, helping businesses, and fostering a greater understanding of the value veterans can bring to business. And welcome, everybody, to episode number 29 of the Boots About Business podcast. I am your host, Frank Strong, and here with us for this episode is Star Corbin. She's an Army veteran and today serves as the head of software for Diligent Robotics. That is a very cool sounding startup in Austin, Texas. She also has her own consulting business called Corbin Solutions. And if that's not enough, she's also working on a PhD. And we're going to get into that a little bit on the show. Welcome to the show, ma'am. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. The first question I always ask everybody, why did you join the service? I am a third generation military service member. So going in, it wasn't such a large, huge life decision. It was just something that was a natural decision, something I fell into. I was a little bit aimless in my youth and the military I saw was the way to find that direction. And I definitely received it. Yeah. And so how did you get in? Like you obviously finished as an officer, but you didn't start that way. Can you tell us about that a little bit? After my, or in the middle of my first year of college, again, aimless, decided on a whim to go enlist in the Army Reserves as a 91 Bravo, again, to get a little bit more discipline and direction and focus and definitely received it. And then took the opportunity, received an ROTC scholarship to get my commission into the Signal Corps as on active duty. Yeah, very cool. And for the Air Force and Navy and the Marines listening to 91 Bravo is a? Combat medic. Combat medic. So you were an enlisted medic and later got into comms, a, a wired soldier. So obviously that was your job. Did you go anywhere special? I went to the great place known as Fort Hood, Texas. And an all expenses paid trip to the Middle East. Yeah, that sounds good. What did you do in the Middle East? We so, talked a little bit about that before the show. We should dive into that a little bit. Yes, I did two roles. I was with the 1st Cavalry Division when I deployed to Baghdad, Iraq in 2004 and returned in 2005. So when I first, I went over there as the aide to the Assistant Division Commander for Support for the 1st Cavalry Division. When he went to return to the Corps of Engineers to become the division commander of the Corps of Engineers in Iraq, I helped him with that transition and then returned back to my signal battalion as essentially a network manager for our battalion and 1st Cav Division headquarters communications. Mm -hmm, very cool. So I always ask these next two questions. I think it's... Um... It's so one of the interesting things that binds us all that have served in uniform. There are good days and there are bad days. The first question I asked is, what was your worst day in uniform? My worst day, obviously outside of, you know, it's just some personal details of my deployment. The worst day I have to say was the day that I left the army. I went in with the mindset when I got my commission. My husband was also in the military. We both went in a year apart. We'd met in ROTC, sort of the ROTC dating game, but we both went in thinking we were going to do 20 years. We were lifers. My father was a lifer. My grandfathers had served. Again, it was in our blood. And after five years and a couple of tours, 
we realized that everything that we essentially thought maybe we would do in 20 years, we were good to do in five. And so the decision to get out was very difficult. That was more of duty to family. I like mm-hmm. to say that and my husband and I will both be very transparent in this, that if we didn't have kids or maybe if, even if we weren't married, because we were like two ships passing in the night being dual military, I have no doubt that I'd still be in. Yeah. I think I hear this a lot from veterans, but there's this, I guess, sense that when you are in the service, you know, it's not just a job. You are there all the time and it becomes a bit of your identity. Yes. And so when you leave, it's like you're, you know, even if you're like ready to get out, there's still some sense that you're leaving a little bit of yourself behind when that happens. Absolutely. There's a lot of good days in uniforms too. So let's flip that question around. What was your best day? That was really the first day that I got my platoon. So typical butter bar, I'd experienced enough of the enlisted world to also be able to relate in to some degree with my soldiers. But I remember that day clearly as, you know, sort of this bucolic setting in my mind. I'm sure it wasn't as romantic to my soldiers as it was to me, but literally the sun setting and, you know, we're all in formation. And my platoon sergeant, who was fantastic, introduced me. I gave a quick speech. And I knew then and there that this was this was the right decision. This was the best decision, that this was something I was meant to do as a career. The Army, for me, was the first thing that I was really good at without having to try so hard. And I just knew then and there that I had found my home. Mm-hmm. So impromptu question, do you remember what you said in your speech? I kept it very brief. <laughs> I remember <laughs> being that soldier in formation and having another lieutenant come in and tell me, yeah. you know, all the song. And I just said, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to working with you. No change. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. There's something to that effect. Good for you. you know, I'm sure they're very grateful. What do you, and you think of, you know, kind of life lessons, uh, things that you absorbed over your time in uniform. What do you think the service taught you? Servant leadership. It's funny, you mentioned earlier about the identity of being a soldier, you know, mm-hmm. a service member. I left the army, I left active duty in 2005. And that was 16 years ago. I'm an old veteran now, I guess you could say. And even in my current job and the way that I manage people and the way that I lead, it really, the root of all of that doesn't come from a book or an MBA. It comes from the 10 years of collective military service that I have of, you know, leading soldiers, being a follower, seeing, learning through example, and then the core tenets of leadership that was ingrained into us from my first day of basic training to going to, you know, my OBC coursework to then, you know, working through the ranks to when I left as a captain. And Mm -hmm. so that was just an experience that I don't think you can get from a book. You can only get it from doing, you know, learning, seeing. And the servant leadership piece is the core tenets of all of that that I learned in the army is so applicable to, to what I do today. I love the being the follower example or illustration. I've heard other, other veterans say that on the show. And it's so true because you do get exposed to no matter what level you are, whether you go in on the enlisted side, or you go in the officer side, you get exposed to a whole bunch of different leaders in a very short period of time. 
and you can pick up the things that you like and the things that you dislike about different personalities or leadership styles. And so it, it really is a crash course in, in leadership. We've danced around this question a little bit already, but let's get into how and why you left the service. Sure. So when I, when the first CAV got our orders to deploy, I was pregnant with my son, who's, I'm the mother of three now. And when I deployed, he was five months old. And so my husband and I had a different cadence of deployment. I deployed first and then I came home and then he actually got called to the IRR and then he deployed. But by the time when I came home, my son was 18 months old and he didn't, he had no clue who I was. And I think when my husband and I started to look at the trajectory of where the Iraq war was going, Afghanistan was getting worse, we really saw a future of that our son was probably going to be our only child. I was, we had already had, we were pending orders to go back in a year. And I was given every amazing opportunity to stay in. And at the end of the day, I was actually going to take a command to send one of the units in my battalion to Iraq, which was a huge, I'd been with that unit for almost five years. I mean, you talk about punching your ticket, right? As an officer yeah. to get command in, in a combat zone. But I remember my XO at the time, she pulled me aside and she said, before you make this decision, it needs to be a decision with you and your husband. You guys have to make this decision together. And as supportive as my husband you know, was and, and is, he's my biggest fan to this day, we really said, okay, if we do this, here is what our lives are going to be like. And so I realized, as well as he did, that like I couldn't be the spouse and the mother I wanted to be and be the officer and leader that I wanted to be. And I remember when I asked my father, who did 20 years as well, mm-hmm. I said, what is the one thing that you regret after you know doing 20 plus years? And he says, oh, that's easy. He says, just one thing. I saw you grow up in pictures. And that to me was, was what helped, what made me make the final decision. Very, very difficult decision though. Yeah, that's rough. That is a, a difficult decision. In some ways, the I don't know. I, it's probably not a good analogy, but you you have a sense of I can say this now that I'm a parent, but even as like a lieutenant captain, you have this sense of parental responsibility, even with your soldiers, yes, if you will. Absolutely. So in a way, you're you are kind of giving up a baby, even though it's not you know like raising. Yes, absolutely. What would, so you decide you make this call. You decide to get out. What's your plan? What are you going to do for work? Oh, I'm sure my plan was what every soldier or officer thinks is that I have been, I've served in Iraq. I've led soldiers. I'm a signal officer, which is, you know, that's the IT arm of the army. Mm -hmm. I am highly marketable. Everybody's going to want me in their company. And that was what you're thinking. This is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Uh it's going to be this romantic utopia. I'm going to get at the house with the white picket fence and it's just going to be all laid out for me perfectly. And it was not. (laughs) I remember I submitted my application, my resume out probably about a hunt to a hundred different places. Uh And only one, one place called me back. And that was the university of Texas. And it was a fantastic job, but it was a job that was actually less than the salary I was earning in the army. 
And so I had to swallow a lot of pride and take an entry level position, knowing, you know, here I was 28 years old with more experience than most professionals have in their career, at least I felt. Yeah. And having to go into an entry level position that only required a security clearance and a bachelor's degree was tough to swallow, but I did it. It was a, I knew that it was one of those opportunities where it's like, take it, you need a job and you'll work your way through it. And I ended up spending almost seven years with the University of Texas and worked my way up from being a managing network security to actually running the IT shop and the overall network management of that arm when I left. Uh So, I mean, I can identify with that comment explicitly because I had a similar experience and it was really about money. I made more money as a lieutenant than I did, (laughs) you know, just with the BAH and all that stuff. And uh, so that was, I had, I took a, a big pay cut um, living in DC, and that was hard to swallow. Did you find I, one of the things that happens though is that I find veterans tend to m- then move forward pretty quickly. Yes, they sort of if they if they swallow their pride and they take that role to kind of prove their value. You have to prove your value again, right? Which isn't something we're strangers to in the military. That happens every time you get a new position. Yes, you tend to move up quickly. Did you find that was true for you? That was true. I think naturally, you know, the job didn't necessarily set this high bar in terms of the work required and stuff. But as someone who was in the military, my bar was already set really high. And so it wasn't enough going in to just do the job. It was how can we work smarter, not harder? How can I make this role even more significant in this organization? What more can I do? And so I went from an administrative role to then actually creating a new role where I knew that I was capable of doing so much more. And even my boss, when he hired me, he's like, you're so overqualified for this position. And I just had humility. And I Mm -hmm. knew that, you know, I was, well, let me come in and let me see what I can do. And at that point, I just resolved to just execute, Mm -hmm. you know, pride set aside. At the end of the day, I also looked at it having the experience of Iraq and losing soldiers. You know, it's like, I have a job. I can afford to provide food on the table with my husband. Mm -hmm. My son is healthy. My family's healthy. What do I have to complain about? I have a job. And that's all that mattered at the end of the day. And then working extra hard just came naturally from, you know, my time in service. That's what you do. Yeah. So you wind up with uh, an academic institution doing an administrative job at an academic institution, still along the same lines of what you did in the Army. But how did that lead to a career in business? How did you make that transition? So over the course of my career at UT, where I went from really being an individual contributor to then running the IT organization, there was a lot of project management work that needed to be done. That really came naturally to me because I think what a lot of people don't realize when you're in the service, you are doing project management on steroids. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work was in technology management, you know, logistics, moving soldiers, getting people to the right place on time with the right equipment, all of that. And so I really had a good knack for it. And towards the last two years of my career at UT, I was managing budgets. I was managing people. I was managing the the IT organization and the work that needed to be done. And so I realized that I was transitioning from where I had grown to was hands-on, you know, systems and network administration to then technology management. And I said, 
you know, I really like to be able to do this on a, with a larger organization. And that's when an opportunity to go into consulting came along and, and I seized it. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that. You ended up starting your own company as a consultant. I did. That's, that's kind of a big gamble. It was a big gamble. That was definitely fast forward at that point. I had spent almost five years as a consultant with Capgemini, which is a large international consulting firm, and then decided to go to business school because what I realized was that there were certain skill sets that I was lacking, primarily in financial management and planning. Obviously, I'm not an accountant, but being able to understand you know, not just the basics of budgets, but, you know, capital expenditures, operational expenses, all of that stuff that really at the end of the day, when you're making a, a business case to start an IT project, it usually always boils down to cost. And so I really decided to go to business school, mind you, courtesy of the U.S. Army, the VA, to really sharpen my skills in the financial sector, but then to also learn you know, mergers and acquisitions, starting a company, what goes into startups and all of that. And so after business school, that really was a huge rocket ship for at least for my career. I got picked up by iHeartMedia and was given the opportunity to oversee an organization responsible for the technology infrastructure for radio programming. So essentially how mm -hmm. music gets to your radio every day, but for now, just not, you know, one organization, but managing that process for all of our radio stations across the U.S. And having that financial acumen and understanding of business strategy was really key to me getting that job. And then, of course, moving on and starting my own business. Yeah. So I skipped a step there, obviously. So you left UT, you went to work for Capgemini, pretty prestigious you know, organization, at least in the IT world. You kind of cut your teeth on project management, building on the things that you learned in the army. You went back, got an MBA, mm -hmm. you get picked up by iHeartMedia. And then you're like, okay, now I want to do my own thing. Yeah. iHeartMedia, unfortunately also went into bankruptcy. And mm -hmm. so, and I went in, you know, with eyes wide open. And so me moving on was unfortunately also the result of a lot of cuts that iHeart unfortunately had to make as a result of the bankruptcy. And so I was lucky to be offered a severance and I took it and I said, you know, let me try being my own boss for a little bit. And just through my network, through my army network, through my business network, what can I start and what can I do? And so I was able to find a niche in IT, overseeing IT procurement and vendor management, as well as contracts and project management that sustained me for the better part of two years before I went to Diligent Robotics. Uh-huh. So how many years did you own your own business? Like how long has that been? Uh, it's been just over two years. Okay. So you've done that for two years, almost an entrepreneur out of necessity, mm -hmm. but you got some traction, you found success, some success with it. You were keeping busy, but maybe you weren't busy enough and you decided you needed a, another job. So how did, how did that turn into this role with the startup? So that was very serendipitous. I was on, I was reading the Austin Monthly on a Sunday afternoon and came across an article about the founder, Andrea Tomaz, who is of Diligent Robotics. And mm -hmm. Andrea, of course, is a robotics specialist, especially with robotic and human interaction. I found it extremely intriguing to 
read an article about a, a woman CEO and her co-founder, Vivian Chu, who's the CTO, two women leading a robotics company is, is quite rare. Yeah. And so I reached out to Andrea on LinkedIn. And I, first of all, I can't tell you enough, if you're not on LinkedIn as a veteran entrepreneur, you need to get on LinkedIn. But I reached out to her and really sort of pitched her, you know, this, my services, my company services in the areas of IT delivery and project management. And we had, and she immediately followed up and we had this great introduction. And at the end of it, she says, would you consider joining us? We have a position open. Would you consider interviewing for it? And I actually said, no, I didn't feel like I was the, had the right technical chops to lead a robotics engineering software team. And I also, too, I'm in my 40s. I'm very confident in my capability. And I'm also confident enough to say no when I may not feel like I can give 110% to something. And I said, you know, but by all means, I don't want to get in the way of anyone else that you might have in the queue. And she said, talk to my CTO. Vivian and I hit it off really well. And I really started to hear their vision, the idea of working for uh, two women in a robotics company is, as a woman in tech, that's hard to pass up. Uh-huh. Also, too, I think what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize that the last time I worked for a lot of women was when I was in the Army. And a lot of people are really shocked to know that. I've been in tech as a civilian for 16 years now, and I haven't had a, I've never reported to a woman. I've never had a female manager. So this was an opportunity to explore a field that I didn't have any previous experience with, but also to work in an industry that has a great social impact because the robots that we're building are used in the healthcare environment. Yeah. I was going to ask you, just tell us briefly, what is it that Diligent Robotics does? What do they make? Sure. So our core product is the Moxie robot and Moxie is specifically in the healthcare space. And what Moxie does is it assists nurses and clinical staff with day-to-day tasks, such as the delivery of PPE, which is very important in the era of COVID, Mm -hmm. as well as, for example, running uh, tasks to and from the pharmacy. So we sort of really help our nurses and clinical staff take care of day-to-day tasks so they could have more face time with their patients. Huh. So the robot's doing the running around and and they get more time in the room and... yes checking up on the patients. So that's interesting. And you're still doing, you still have a consulting business. I still have the consulting business. Yes, I do. And so the balance was to not take on new business, of course, as much as then handing off existing business with some of the partners that I've uh, collaborated with over the past two years so that I can Mm -hmm. have as much primary focus on the startup, which it's a grind. It's a startup. So definitely requires a lot, a lot more time than working for a large corporate environment in my experience. Okay. So let me ask, so we asked a little bit earlier about how the, what the military has taught you and you, we got into a discussion briefly about the skills that you taught you in, in business. I wonder if, if you'd elaborate on that any, a little bit and like, how was your military experience helped you as a, a business leader in the technology sector? Sure. I go back to the concept of servant leadership. I approach working and managing with teams, not so much as, well, here's what I need you to do. My approach to leadership and management, especially in tech, 
especially because we're in a startup environment and things have to move fast, I really take the approach of what does my team need to be the most successful at what they do? I also, through the concept of servant leadership, one of the things that I learned in the army was, you know, team autonomy and the need to be very clear on what the intent is. In the army, we called it what the commander's intent is. And knowing that you have literally an army of people whose specialty is to do the work and figure out how to do the work. And your your role as a leader is to provide that commander's intent, the what and the why is what I like to say, and then let the team figure out the how, right? Because that's what you've hired them to do. So my role as a servant leader that I've taken from the army and that I continue to reiterate on today is making sure, for example, that I have, we had these in the army, the counseling sessions, right? How are things going? Here's how you're, here's how you're progressing in your job. I don't wait until the end of the year to do that with my team. I do that. I have one-on-ones. I do that on a quarterly basis. Mm -hmm. When I hire someone new, I do an initial counseling. Here's what your job is. Here's the expectations. There's never a question of what your role is and what you're expected to do, but then also making sure that we do retrospectives. We do after action reviews. Of course, now Mm -hmm. in tech, they're called retrospectives, right? But it's also providing that 360 degree feedback. What Mm -hmm. what do we do well? What can we approve upon? Are you working in an environment that best makes you successful? And instead of really a top-down authoritative approach, which a lot of people have this misconcept of in the military, that it's just that. And it's no, it's a very collaborative environment where you allow your team to develop mastery of their job and the and give them the autonomy and the space to be the most successful at how to execute. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially with your comment around, um, you know, like AR slash hot wash and you call them retrospective in text. That's good because I think they used to call them postmortems, which is yeah. A terrible, terrible term. A very morbid term. <laughs> yeah. But the just in terms of the AR and hot wash, and I found this to be true in planning from a wargaming perspective, it does always catch people by surprise that you are looking for a diversity of ideas. Yes. You are able to speak out no matter what your rank is, because it's, that's the opportunity to improve, right? Yes. To find lessons learned, or if you're on the front end of that cycle and planning, you know, thinking about potential scenarios that you hadn't thought of, you know, and now you're going to deal with those challenges. Better to do it in a conference room than to do it on the field later. Absolutely. What's for somebody that's, you know, in the military, maybe they're out and they're just thinking about getting a a career in tech or in business. What advice would you have for them? I think the biggest things is prepare as early in advance for that civilian transition. In my day, I don't know if it's changed. You know, there was the ACAP process. And I remember getting, you know, three pages of everything I had to do, CIF, all that stuff. And all I wanted to do is get through that checklist as fast as possible. And I didn't take advantage of the career discussions and discussions about networking and how to read a job board, how to write a resume, all of those little things that the Army actually did provide that I didn't take advantage of. I think the other piece is really being able to succinctly translate what you did in the military into business speak. I was lucky in that I was a signal officer, so I could talk about, you know, well, my unit was like the AT&T of the 1st Cavalry Division, right? We did telecommunications, et cetera. My husband, who was an infantry officer, 
you know, you're having a hard time if, explaining what you did if you're trying to apply to the post the post office, right? You know, weapons specialist, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, well, no, what are the things that are generally going to be needed and valued across an organization that everybody has done in the military? And that really does go into logistics planning, mm -hmm. project management, resource management, being able to deliver on time, budget agnostic, right? With all the budget in the army, but really being able to start with the end in mind. When you talk about planning a convoy, when you talk about, you know, airlifting X number of passengers from one country to another, the logistics of moving multi-million dollar pieces of equipment from one continent to another, right? Being able to translate that into things that the civilian world needs, regardless of the industry, is extremely important. So once you choose an industry, really start to focus on, okay, if I want to go into development and coding, right? But I may not want to go into take the time to get a computer science degree. Well, there's boot camps, there's certifications that the GI Bill will pay for and compensate for. If you want to go into project management, the GI Bill, the military will help provide and pay for the certification classes. So then it really becomes while you're on leave or while you're in during the ACAP process, how much of the certifications can you knock out for the industry that you want to go into to make you a better candidate in the long run? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that brings up, I guess I, I'd have one, one last question and we're getting towards the end here, but you did mention you earned an MBA. We're talking about some of the, the ways you can apply the GI Bill to advance your career. In retrospect, how do you feel about the MBA? Is it something you recommend to others? Has it really made a difference? Do you have to have one? I don't think you have to have one. It made a tremendous difference for me because I had a general studies degree. I didn't have a business undergraduate degree. And I was also looking to fill very specific gaps of within business knowledge. And for me, I can say that it was worth it for me because it was very transformational in terms of my career, right? I had felt like as a consultant, I had plateaued and then I got my MBA, made the right connections. And that was key. It wasn't so much what I learned, it's who I met, which yeah. really increased the trajectory. So I think any program that can provide you networking opportunities for the industry that you want to go into is key. And it's whether it's an MBA, what it is, is agnostic. It's really a matter of, are you going to be able to leverage new connections? And are you going to be able to get curriculum that will allow you to make a case to an organization as to why you're best suited than someone else? I think the other key thing for me was that I was someone who had gotten an MBA later in life, later in their career. So they were, you know, really it was oh, this person is amazing at time management, et cetera, et cetera. I did this on the weekends at night, not in a full-time mm -hmm. program. But I do think that what the key for me with the MBA wasn't so much just having that piece of paper and you know that credential. For me, it was about exhausting all of my military benefits and taking advantage of the career and education opportunities that the GI Bill afforded. It is a buffet of opportunity out there that the GI Bill will pay for. And it is, I almost consider it a crime to let that GI Bill go to waste. Yeah. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's other opportunities too. I, I too went and got an MBA, but I did it long before I got the post 9-11 GI Bill. But I was able to use that and transfer it to my daughter, who is now 10. Yes. And so, so her college is paid. I did it with enough. You have to make sure you have enough time left in service. And I, I needed like four more years before I could retire. And it worked out. But if you look into that, I mean, that's just very comforting to know that. Absolutely. In eight, eight years, she's heading off to college. And I've got a big chunk of that paid for. Plus, it puts a little money in her pocket while she's there. So there, are, you can certainly use it to advance your own. And this podcast is largely around the career transition. But there are other options. It's definitely worth looking into. Definitely, definitely. don't let it waste. Yes. Uh, all right. Final question. If someone listening to this, you know, listening to the show has a question, is there, you know, they wanted to reach out and connect with you? Is there someplace they could find you online? LinkedIn is the best place. Send me a DM. Feel free to reach out and connect and I'll be happy to accept. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes along with a link to your company and to your startup or the startup that you work for. Star, I want to say, hey, thanks for your service. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experience. It's been great. Thank you, Frank. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. Please know you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you are there, won't you leave us a nice review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. Finally, if you know someone that's a veteran in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, Hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's bootsaboutbusiness.com. That's all one word, bootsaboutbusiness.com. Until next time, I am your host, Frank Strong, out here.